Thank you very much for the special music. Very, very beautiful. Very nicely done. And thank you to Mr. Dawson for the sermonette. Uh, really flows together with what I'd like to talk about today. There are some things that we should leave behind for the feast and, frankly, for our lives in general. And I think we'll see that as we go along. This summer certainly has been interesting and eventful, hasn't it? In so many ways. I think in ways we will never forget. One of the major developments, of course, was rioters pulling down monuments. And in some cases, for in ways that were mind-boggling. It's hard to figure out what they were accomplishing. Here's a quote from Dr. Ben Carson, Secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. In July 2nd article, that was shown on NBC uh, website news. In Portland, Oregon, we saw a statue of George Washington torn down. In Washington, D.C., we saw a World War II memorial vandalized. In Madison, Wisconsin, protesters pulled down a statue of Hans Christian Hegg, a fierce abolitionist and someone who made the ultimate sacrifice to free slaves. This raises the question, what are these people fighting for? What are these people fighting for? Good question. Because clearly, as more time has gone on, we can see for many a much bigger agenda than just seeing justice done in Minneapolis and in other places, other situations. The, the agenda was to burn the system down. And that was and continues to be, for some, their cause. That's their cause, their movement. On the other hand, also this summer we've seen the other end of the political spectrum pushing back at some of these rioters, even armed conflict in the streets, which continues, some even expecting clashes today, this weekend. These people are attempting to defend the system, the traditions and the values as they see it. And that's their cause. So there's a war going on. But it's not just in the streets, it's in the media, it's on social media. The barbs, the insults, the attacks are flying, aren't they? From every direction. And especially, as we heard, as an election draws near, the Supreme Court vacancy has occurred, a lot of issues are going on. We've been warned by Mr. Weston and others to not get caught up in what's happening and the many side issues along the way. You know, the virus, the masks, all of these things. And that's good advice because the United States today is getting more and more polarized by the day. And it's not just the U.S., Division and unrest is happening all over the world, has been really increasingly for the last a few years especially. There's a website called Global Protest Tracker. It says since 2017, 
About a hundred significant anti-government protests have erupted worldwide. About 30 governments or leaders have fallen as a result of the protests. Eight out of 12 South American countries have experienced significant protests, with some of the most violent in Iran, Iraq, and Nicaragua. Nicaragua, some of those most violent protests around the world. And, of course, the coronavirus lockdown has made things much worse. The social issues that have sprung up this summer with protesters pulling down monuments in the U.K., Belgium, India, South Africa, New Zealand, the world's on fire. The world's on fire. But the world is also aghast at what is happening in the U.S. Because... For many decades, the U.S. has been a, despite all our problems, a, a model of consistency and normalcy. And yet here's an article from August 28th, amid unrest, America is unrecognizable to its allies. The article goes, says this, while all countries in 2020 are facing the twin threats of the deadly coronavirus pandemic and shark ec- sharp economic downturns, the U.S. finds itself in a unique position with levels of social unrest not experienced since the 1960s. Seen for more than 70 years as the politically stable leader of the democratic West, America and its deep social and economic cleavages are being laid bare before the rest of the world in the final week of August. They're baffled and confused. And even have, we've elicited some sympathy from some. Uh, Here's another article from the New York Times. The title is, I Feel Sorry for Americans. A Baffled World Watches the U.S. It reads this, Myanmar is a poor country struggling with open ethnic warfare and a coronavirus outbreak that could overload its broken hospitals. But that hasn't stopped its politicians from commiserating with a country they think has lost its way. I feel sorry for Americans, said U Mint U, a member of parliament in Myanmar, but we can't help the U.S. because we're a very small country. The same sentiment prevails in Canada, one of the most developed countries. Two out of three Canadians live within about 60 miles of the American border. Personally, it's like watching the decline of the Roman Empire, said Mike Bradley, the mayor of Sarnia, an industrial city on the border with Michigan in recent days. What is happening? There is a spirit of anarchy that is affecting the world and spreading. And as the system goes up in flames, what we are seeing here in the United States is two very different perspectives Two very different movements, two very different causes, with two very different solutions. And it's becoming polarized. And you're either on one side or the other. And that's why the holy days are so important. Because during the holy days, we can have our minds washed, we can have our minds cleansed, and we can have our minds cleared of all the clutter and all the garbage and all the problems 
and be filled and refilled with the cause that we are here for. And that cause that we are backing, the most important cause on the face of the earth, the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. Brethren, I'd like to ask a question today. Do you ask yourself a question? What cause are you fighting for? What cause are you fighting for? Let's go to the book of Revelation, and let's get a quick glimpse of, through prophecy, through the pages of the Bible, what we are focusing on, and where our minds go during the holy days, especially the fall holy day season, Revelation chapter 19. And what cause are we here for, and what cause are we getting behind? Revelation 19 and verse verse 14, we'll just... Uh, get a few snippets of this, glimpses of the future, the cause we're a part of, Revelation 19. Let's actually start in verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes, verse 12, were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. In verse 14, Revelation 19, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Jesus Christ is about to return, and this time not as a human being, but as a conquering king, as we learn on the Feast of Trumpets, as we rehearse on the Feast of Trumpets, and as we're encouraged about that on the Feast of Trumpets. And when it's his turn to return, his servants will also take up that cause and be a part of what he's doing to establish his kingdom here on earth. Let's notice something later in chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So after Jesus Christ vanquishes his human foes, he'll deal with the spirit world as well. And we know on the Day of Atonement we learn and we rehearse that Satan the devil will be captured and he'll be locked up for a thousand years. The adversary, the evil one, the one who made himself the enemy of God and the enemy of God's servants and God's people. He'll be overcome and stopped. Notice what happens next. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again till the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And of course, that's what we learn and rehearse on the, during the Feast of Tabernacles. Thinking about a thousand years of peace and a thousand years of God's way of life being taught and a thousand years of us being a part of the solution to administer order out of chaos, good out of destruction. It'll be wonderful. What a breath breath of fresh air that we can get a, a glimpse through the holy days of that time, especially in times of chaos and problems. And it's a mission and a cause we can get behind. The establishment of the kingdom of God. But let's roll that back a little bit in terms of the timeline because we're not there yet, are we? We're not yet in the, let's say, time of history yet to the return of Christ, the banishment of Satan, and the establishment of the kingdom on earth. So what do we do today? And how do we respond to the challenges of the pressure we have to conform to the causes of this world? When our cause, the cause of of the kingdom of God being established on earth, is not yet here. It's not yet present. So what do we do now while we're waiting? And how do we resist the pressure to be a part of the causes of this world? Because there is pressure, isn't there? Not long ago, there was a conservative radio talk show host that told his audience, he said, it's time for millennials to decide which side they're on. In other words, it's time to not sit on the fence anymore. If you're concerned about your future, you're concerned about your world, it's not a game Things are happening that are going to destroy your world. Your way of life is being threatened by anarchists. It's time to stand up and push back. Now, that doesn't affect us, right? We're not affected by those pressures. Well, we in the church generally do fall on the side of more conservative, the conservative side of issues. Generally, the conservative side tends to be more a part of, you know, morality, uh, even supporting the, the, the free exercise of religion. We like that. We appreciate that. We need that. But brethren, you know one thing conservatives can't stand? People who don't vote. And we don't vote. Do you see any possible problem with that coming in the future? You know, if you're a conservative, the only worse thing than a Democrat is a Laodicean conservative. (laughs) A lukewarm conservative. One who says, I believe in certain values, but I'm not going to stick my neck out and vote. Well, there's a reason why we don't vote. We don't back either of these causes, do we? Neither has the ultimate answer. 
And God's the one who places leaders in positions of power. As Mr. Weston has explained more than once, um, you know, if I vote for a leader who maybe is the better of two evils, however you define that, uh, but Christ wants the other person to be in charge for his purpose to accomplish his will, then I'm voting against Christ. And I don't want to be on that side. I don't want to be in that position. And yet, to many people, most people in our country today, to not vote is civic heresy. You just don't do that. It's a sacred trust to be a part of the system. And we're in an election season, and we've seen the message already to get out and vote. In the one of the articles that I was quoting earlier just a few minutes ago, when I pulled up the article this morning, what was the ad in the banner at the top of the page? It said, we're asking Christians to pray, engage, and vote. This message is starting to accelerate, isn't it? On the radio this week, I think there was a um, commentator or an ad or one or the other, essentially, that in, in a nutshell, <clears throat> there was a message. Uh, basically, someone w- was saying, Christians need to get off their uh, seats and get out to vote. Didn't use that language. They need to get out to vote. Christians who care about the, the world and care about where this is going need to do something about it. Why am I saying this? Because some millennials, and I'm not just going to limit this to millennials, but some millennials have already gotten confused. You look on social media, there was a post from a millennial from another Church of God group some time ago explaining the reason why she's voting. And you know, there were others who were applauding her for it. And frankly, sort of mocking our old position, mocking the position of of Worldwide Church of God and, and, and the Church of God position of not voting. You know, we need to clearly understand why we don't get involved in this world politics, especially as the pressure intensifies. I'll give you a really life example of how the pressure can intensify. This happened about 20 years ago. We had a man in the Philippines, a leading member in one of the congregations in the South, where uh, there were many Muslims who live in that area. And uh, there was uh, this ongoing conflict between Christians and Muslims and back and forth and back and forth. And there was a particular time when the Muslims were controlling his area of where he lived. And he got a note one night, real late, from an unnamed visitor that he was either second or third on the list for the rebel leaders to come and collect taxes. Extortion, basically. That's how they fund their insurgency against the government. He was a successful business owner, and they were going to come to, to collect. That was the world he lived in. And you don't refuse when they do that. Well, not long after that, the, the, the government had a, had a, a push 
and uh, the other factions in the area gained control, and the Christians, so-called nominal Christians in that area, formed militias, armed militias, and pushed the Muslims back and gained control of where he lived. And now he was getting pressure from the other side to join in. After all, he was a Christian, a true Christian, you know, a real Christian, but in their eyes, he was one of them. What's he going to do? He talked to his pastor. We talked about it. We talked to headquarters. And the answer was, look, Christ said, he who takes up the sword will die with the sword. And that's what the man did. God preserved him. God took care of him. He's around to this day. He's an elder. He's a leader in the church today. Just uh, got a note from him not long ago. Doing well. But that was real pressure. It wasn't theoretical. It wasn't just sort of insults. It wasn't just sort of, you know, online back and forth. It was real, and it was right in front of him. Brethren, where do we stand? Which cause do we support? And could we be dragged into the wrong causes without intending to be? Turn over to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23. I'm sorry, I think I transposed it. Exodus 32. 32. We'll read the whole story here. Of course, it's the, the story of, of the children of Israel uh, falling into idolatry and Moses coming down and all the things that happened after that. But I, I just want to draw our attention to one thing that Moses said. Verse 25, Exodus 32, 25. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, For Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Verse 26, Exodus 32. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together with him. Again, purpose is not to go through the rest of the story. Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. You know, brethren, that's the call that we are getting from God today, isn't it? As we get more pressure from all kinds of isms and all kinds of movements and all kinds of causes around us. Our world is like a ship. Let's let's just call it the Titanic, okay? Just for... Uh, just to pick a name out of thin air. Titanic. That's a good name for a ship, right? It's like a big ship that, you know, couldn't possibly fail, couldn't possibly sink because it's so big and so awesome and so powerful, and yet it's hit an iceberg and it's going down. It's taking water. And, you know, there's a popular saying we sometimes use when we speak of doing futile things that are so focused on the details and missing the big picture, like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Sometimes we use that phrase. 
Well, brethren, our world is not rearranging deck chairs. They're fighting over the deck chairs on the Titanic. Can we see the futility of that? Because neither side has the answers. Neither side has the solution to the bigger problem that the ship is actually sinking. And everyone on that ship is actually going to perish. So it doesn't matter who owns the deck chairs or who gets control. And we can see the fight on the news. We can see it increasingly on the streets. Which are we going to choose? Or is there a third option? There is. Not the right or the left, not Republican or Democrat, not conservative or liberal, but the third option, and that is announcing the establishment of the kingdom of God. See, because there is a cause that we're a part of today. Just because the actual event is yet future doesn't mean that we're not a part of the cause of announcing and preparing for the establishment of the kingdom of God. And we're no longer part of this world. We made that commitment. Those of us who are baptized, we made it maybe years ago. Notice in 1 John 1.15. 1 John 1.15. If you were baptized... 2.15, sorry. Uh, Ten years ago, if you were baptized 50 years ago... Let's, let's continue this analogy of the Titanic because it's so encouraging, you know. Uh, you know, when you were baptized, you got off that boat. When you made the commitment to follow a different cause, you exited that boat whenever you were baptized. Notice what it says, 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. It's sinking. It's perishing. It's not going to last. It's not sustainable. The cracks are showing. The lid's been taken off. And the cracks are very obvious, aren't they? The world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. There's a totally different cause that we can be a part of and we actually became a part of when we made that commitment to leave the world behind and commit our lives to God in Jesus Christ. There is no saving this world. It's built on lust and greed and pride. It's Satan's world. It's self-destructive. And we're walking away from it. Now, I, I understand some will say, wait a minute, you're contradicting yourself. You're saying we got off the, the boat, but we're still here. We're still in the world. I know. Let's turn over to uh, John chapter 17. John chapter 17 and verse John chapter 17 
and verse 15. Uh, verse 14. John 17, 14. I have given them your words. Jesus is praying to the Father just before he died, just before he was arrested, was crucified. For what? For not being a part of the causes of this world. He chose a different cause, the third way, the right cause. Looking forward to his kingdom being established. And, and, and he died for it. He said, praying to the Father about us, about his disciples, and ultimately us. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. His disciples at that time. Just as I am not of the world, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Notice verse 18. But as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So, yes, technically, we are a part of this physical world. I get it. Spiritually, we have left it. Spiritually, we have turned our back on it. But even in that sense, what is Christ telling his disciples? I am sending you into the world, just as he was sent into the world to do what? To announce the cause of the establishment of the kingdom of God. So let's go back to our Titanic analogy. Yes, we've gotten off of the boat. But what is God calling us to do? Not just to save ourselves, right? He's calling us to turn around and warn those on the ship, as many who will respond, so they might be able to get off the ship. That's the cause we're a part of. That's why we're here. That's what the work of God is doing today. The kingdom's not yet here, but the message of the future establishment of the kingdom is going on right now. And that's what we're a part of. And that's the cause that we are behind. And we've been a part of and behind for many of us for years. What if you're not baptized? What if you've not yet made a commitment to that cause? What if you're a young person? Let's turn over to Luke uh, chapter 2 and verse 48. Luke 2 and verse 48. This is, of course, the story of Jesus when he uh, was left behind. Speaking of things being left behind, I don't... Yeah, we don't want to leave our children behind, okay, when we go to the feast. I think Mr. Dawson, that's one example he didn't use. It. Don't leave your children behind, no matter what you do. Well, in this case, he sort of got left behind on the way back from the feast. Take your children back home as well after the feast. Don't leave them behind. I understand. There, there, there were family groups that were, that were traveling, and, and he was thought to be in a different group. But... Jumping into the story, uh, when they finally found him, and they said, uh, his mother said, verse 48, uh, Luke 2, 
Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? Interesting. How old was he? Twelve years old. Twelve years old. Now, I don't want to take this analogy too far because this was the Son of God. He, he was God in the flesh. But at 12 years old, he began to be aware of his mission. Can our 12-year-olds begin to comprehend the cause that we're a part of? I think so. I think so, and I think we shortchange them if we don't think that they can comprehend that at 12 or 10 or 8, our children. You better believe that Satan is trying to get them to understand and be pulled into his cause at 12 or 10 or 8. And he's bombarding them with a message from the very beginning. Should we not be helping them to see the cause at an early age as well. Even at 12 or less, you can be a part of understanding the bigger issues facing our country and nation and world and what the real solution is. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. We're, we're facing challenges and the We've got to resist the temptation to, to be a part of the causes of this world. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. It's a go-to scripture in terms of the work and what we are doing today in the work. He talks to the Philadelphians. Uh, verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Jesus is saying, look, in the end time, I'm going to protect some from this worst trial ever to come on the face of the earth. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you protection. Now, what is it predicated on? Earlier in the passage, notice verse Verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these things, says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. The open door consistently throughout the New Testament is about doing the work. Opportunities to go through a door and preach the announcement of the establishment of the kingdom of God. That's the open door. So whoever is in this situation is doing that work and going through that open door. Frankly, in a time of a lot of distractions, a lot of causes that can get our mind off of it. Notice in chapter 3 and verse Verse 19, speaking to the Laodicean era, the last era of the church. He says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will 
Come into him and dine with him and he with me. In other words, it's time to not just save ourselves. It's time to be zealous for getting the warning out to help others recover themselves from the sinking ship. Brethren, how grateful we are that we are a part of that work. And we can get behind a cause that really means something, is really meaningful, and is really doing something. You know, as was mentioned in the sermonette, that God is blessing the work today. He's blessing the income. Even in a time of economic uh, hardship, He's blessing the income in this country, in the UK, in Canada, Australia. We're getting reports all over the world. God blessing the income. He's also opening doors, especially with the work online. In a ministerial conference that was conducted a few days ago, uh, it was mentioned, I think Mr. Ames mentioned this, online lit orders are up about 1,200% over the same time last year. Same time period last year. I think month of August to month of August last year. What that means is one year ago for a month, we were getting about 2,500 online orders. This is for booklets. And this year, around August, I think, or July, August, uh, we're getting about 30,000 online responses, online orders for booklet. Now, I understand There's 7.5 billion people. So 30,000 is whatever. One millionth of that or something. I didn't do the math. You know, it's, it's very small. But it's not insignificant, is it? And it's a door. And it's growing. And it's not insignificant if you're one of those 30,000. Also, Bible study course. About a year ago, there were a 1,000 Bible study course starts per month, new people starting it for the first time. This year, we're getting about 10,000 new Bible study course starts per month. In other words, those are 10,000 people per month who are on the deck of the Titanic. Let's continue that metaphor. They're looking around thinking, what are we supposed to be doing? And we're calling out to them and we're warning them. And they're listening. They're listening. 10,000 a month. And God willing, they will continue to respond and, and take it the step further. Mr. Ames also reported that we're having about 45,000 lit requests per month from television. And 19,000 of them are brand new ads, brand new people who've never responded before. In the month of August, 19,000 people who we've never heard from before, or at least are not on our mailing list, heard the message. We got their attention, and they're listening, and they ordered something, and now they're reading it. That's not insignificant. Let's turn over to John chapter 4 and verse 34. Now again, is there a lot of work to do? Absolutely. Is there a lot more to do? Absolutely. Can we do it all by our efforts? We can do none of it by our own efforts. As Mr. Apartian said some years ago at one of the ministerial conferences before he died, 
He said, you cannot do the work. Jesus Christ can do it in you. And truly, brethren, when we see the numbers, when we look at the numbers, you know, at this rate, you know, what, what it, maybe a hundred years, maybe more than that, we'll reach the... No, there, there has to be something that God will do to, to make the world know the truth. But we've got to be doing our part, pushing, and, and Mr. Weston is absolutely of that mindset, looking for every door we can go through, knocking on doors and trying to find new ways to do it. And God is opening doors. John chapter 4 and verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, his food, his cause, what got him excited, the reason for being, the thing that that made him move and, and, and got him even emotionally involved, the thing that was so important in his life, nothing else even compared his food, his meat. Do you not say, do not say, uh, sorry, verse 35, do you not say there are still four months and then the, comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're already white for harvest. Uh, you know, apparently he was talking, he was saying these things when, when the, the fields around them were newly planted and were not yet ready, but he was saying, look, Think about the whole world and think about how many people are, are crying out for, for needing this truth and are confused and are in chaos. That world at that time was being pulled apart by political divisions among the Jews and among the non-Jewish nations. He says, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and... Look at the fields, they are already white for harvest, and he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And brethren, we are sitting here today because others labored 60, 70, 80 90 years ago. You know, my parents came into the church. Why? Because Mr. Armstrong was doing a work. And there were people supporting Mr. Armstrong in that work. And they heard the message. And I've benefited from this, from some sowing, so that I could be benefited and reap blessings in my life. And I think every one of us here has been a part of reaping benefits because of others sowing. This work, we've already been blessed by it. Now, does it mean that Christ said, you know, he never took a a break, never rested, never had a diversion? Of course not. He he rested. He, you know, there, there... I'm sure he had a light moment with his disciples. There were times when he needed a little diversion. Oftentimes people followed him, and then it turned into not a diversion. But all too often in our world, the diversion becomes the main event, doesn't it? The main cause, instead of just diversion. 
You know, it's interesting when we think of the work of, that Mr. Armstrong did, and, but not only that, more recent years, uh, under Dr. Meredith. Back in 2012, which was a 20 year mark, work, a 20 year mark for the work under Dr. Meredith from 1992, when he started, uh, when he was forcibly retired by the former association, and by the way, he was on radio in about six weeks. He was retired in uh, November, December of 92. By the end of January 93, he was on the radio preaching the gospel of the message of the kingdom of God to be established on the earth. That was his driving focus. We all know that. And in 20 years, Mr. back in 2012, uh, Mr. Wayne Pyle uh, helped put these statistics together. It was estimated, and in those 20 years, about 2 million people had requested literature. About 2 million people. Now, that was eight years ago. If we do the math, we figure out all the people who have requested literature within the last eight years, we, we might be getting up to around 3 million people around in the last 28 years. Is that insignificant? Another figure uh, that Mr. Pyle came up with at that time was that about 20 million people had seen the Tomorrow's World program in those 20 years. 20 million people. And again, we might add another eight years. Could be getting close to 30 million people today. The point is that this work has been cumulatively, little by little, a few thousand here and a few thousand there, reaching people who are on that Titanic, which is sinking, which is taking water, and they have, they have left that boat behind. And there's still work to be done. You know, it's interesting when we speak of the church and the purpose of the church. We think about why are we here, as Mr. Weston has sometimes asked. If God is not calling everybody, why is he calling anybody? And it's a good question to ask because the purpose of the church, we have to remember why we're here. That this is not a club. It's not a uh, place to just tell each other how wonderful we are. Although it's, it's good to say we're each wonderful. I mean, that, that's encouraging. But that's not why we're here, is it? Why are we constituted? Why are we a body? The church is constituted to do a work. To give another analogy about a ship, there's a story that went around a few years ago, and I'll recount it here. There was once a lighthouse on a rocky shore where there were often ships that broke upon the rocks, and a tiny little shack where a few hardy souls lived. And when the word came out that a ship was breaking on the rocks, those hardy souls went out to their lifeboats to look for survivors, to bring them back to shore where they could get warm, get by the pot-bellied stove, get some warm clothes, some hot soup, and be protected from the, the storm outside. As the years went by, some of the members of the rescue mission decided that the little shack they used to congregate in was, was not sufficient for their work, so they tore it down and built a bigger building, one that would house more people, a larger kitchen and eating area for the survivors. And instead of the old wood stove, they had central air and heat installed, thinking as long as we're going to live here and work here, we might as well be comfortable. 
And when a ship came upon the shoals, they sprung into action and manned their vessels and ventured out into the howling seas and rescued many souls. More years went by, and because the volunteers would spend long hours waiting by the shore in case there was a ship passing by, they decided they really needed more space, so they added on to their new building, and this time adding a recreational wing where there was a pool table, ping-pong tables for card games, etc. As long as they were there, they might as well make it a gathering place where even locals could stop by for a bite to eat and a game of cards. Over time, they formed an association and had regular meetings where they would discuss their local programs, events, community agenda, and what they planned for the coming year. At some time during this process, the association voted to disband the rescue missions because, after all, they were too dangerous, too expensive, and too time-consuming. And besides, ships only rarely ventured into the dangerous water, so it was deemed an unnecessary nuisance. See where this is going? Today, there are still ships that venture into that dangerous passage, and ships still hit upon the rocks, and lives are lost. But instead of dedicated, hardy souls venturing into the stormy seas, there's no one to come. Why are we here? Why are we here? Just to save ourselves? Yes, we need to get off that ship, but we need to warn others. Could we forget why we are constituted? Could we start getting involved in voting thinking it'll help? Could we start, you know, stocking up ammunition and weapons thinking the Second Amendment ranks right up there with the Sermon on the Mount? Or could we get behind social causes thinking we need to fix this world? Why are we here? Before we close, let's uh, ask ourselves some questions to make sure we're fighting for the right cause, brethren. Number one, number one, are we financially supporting the cause? Are we financially supporting the cause? You know, one of the News items of recent date has been uncovering who is funding some of the rioters, some of the radicals. Because, you know, people don't just appear spontaneously with, with stores of bricks and shields and banners and gear. They are funded, they are financed by somebody. And more and more reports are those somebodies are trying to topple governments. After all, you know... I think it was a few years ago, there was a survey of college texts that are required around the U.S. The third most, uh, most uh, required text for college students in this country was the Communist Manifesto. No wonder why there's so much chaos, especially among the younger generation, young adults. But the point is, no cause can really succeed without funding. So what about us? Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. It matters that we are supporting the most important cause in the world today and for all time. It matters that we are supporting it, both with our heart 
and also with our pocketbook. What did Christ say? Verse 19, Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, does God need our money? No. We need to give our money to the work. It's, it's us who benefit. God has everything. You know, he says, all the silver and all the gold is mine. What will you give to me? It's really we who benefit and others who benefit from us financially backing his work. We're blessed for it. We experience the joy of not only getting off the boat, because others sacrificed so we could get off the boat, but we're looking back, we're turning back, and we're helping to warn those who still need to be warned. Why would we not do it? That's putting our hearts faithfully into tithing and giving offerings. Another question to ask, are we investing our time in praying for the cause? Are we investing our time, number two, in praying for the cause? You know, we all have the same amount of time, don't we? And somehow our time gets used up. What are we using our time for? Are we praying? Are we taking the time to to pray that this work, the media, the telecast, the magazine, the Internet, every part of the effort would be accomplished. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Paul explains what we're up against and why it's a struggle and who we're really fighting against. You know, there, there may come a time when we are actually face-to-face with individuals who are putting pressure, just like that gentleman in the Philippines years ago. And we're faced with some very difficult decisions. But who are we really fighting against? It's not a person. It's not a man. It's not an individual. There is a being we're fighting against. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. This is the background. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. And in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Again, in this holy day season, we learn about who really is behind the causes of this world, don't we? And we're encouraged and, and because then we can see and it's revealed who really is backing these causes that we're having to fight against, frankly, to, from being pulled into and sucked into. It, it's Satan the devil. The Day of Atonement explains that. And when you have taken up the whole armor to stand, verse 14, he says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, 
having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now he starts talking about things that we, we must do. You know, truth is always truth. It doesn't change. Righteousness is always defined by God. It doesn't change. We can take that to the bank, no matter what era we live in. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You know, we need, we need the right footwear. You know, when, when you're reading a book by the fire, drinking hot cocoa, you don't need boots, do you? You need maybe not even slippers, right? But when you're, when you're an army, when you're marching, when you're working, when you're accomplishing something, you need footwear. Not just fuzzy slippers, right? He says, put on the right shoes. The preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all saints, and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul was pleading with them to pray for him, to pray for the work, to pray for the doors. And notice he was an ambassador in chains. Was, was Paul identifying with the causes of his time, with the political causes of his time? Absolutely not. In fact, that's why he was in jail. He was in prison because he represented a different one. The message of announcing the establishment of the coming kingdom of God. The same cause that we are a part of today. What else? What else? Besides supporting the work financially, praying for the work, praying for the work that one more person could be salvaged. Two more, ten more, ten thousand more, a hundred thousand more. We know not everyone will respond, but we've got to get the warning out. And those that repent, those that God calls, we can help them. But what else? Number three. What number three? Are we doing our part in supporting the local chapter of this cause? What does this mean? You know, every cause has a really really effective, good ground game, don't they? A grassroots effort. Meaning they have representatives all over who are serving and helping in the cause. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we are a part of a political rally and we're going to be going door to door to get people to vote. Uh, don't mean that at all. But brethren, we have representatives sprinkled, sprinkled all over the world, don't we? Supporting the local ministry, helping local Sabbath services, being local pillars, bolstering and encouraging each other in the work, delivering telecast tapes to stations, being station monitors, uh, being at TWPs when we have them. Right now we don't, but we, God willing, will in some way. You know, we'll start those up again with His help. 
Or maybe those on social media sharing YouTube telecasts or viewpoints or sermons or whiteboards. Not getting in the face of others, not getting into arguments, but being a solid and stable and faithful, dependable online Christian. All over the world we have. I remember, speaking of social media, having a conversation with some in another fellowship who were saying a mass media effort is is really not the way to go in this time period. We should focus on personal evangelism and uh, what we can do individually to to help our contacts, you know, those that we interact with locally. And it is important to think about who we interact with on a personal level, our neighborhoods, uh, outsiders we come in contact with on the job in the community. That's, that, is, that is huge. Our family, our co-workers. You know, historically a high percentage of people came into the church through contacts with others. Uh, so it is important. Think about our example and not being afraid to shine our light and being willing to share what we have as a part of this work. Not getting into slug matches, but representing Christ. But does that take away the need for the big media effort? That's a mistake to conclude that we can do it all through personal evangelism. Why not do both? Why not have a big media effort? And why not also be good examples in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our jobs and in our communities? The media makes a difference. You know, last year at the Super Bowl, the average cost of a 30-second commercial, probably some of you know this, $5.5 million for 30 seconds. Does, does media matter? Just ask the corporations who's put down $5.5 million for airtime to get their message in front of a lot of eyes. And that's what we're trying to do. Get our message in front of eyes. And how do you do that? There's much more that we can do together. There's much more we can do by using tools that God has made available, mass media today, than just all of us individually. We need to use whatever tools are available to us. But the point is, back to our individual contribution on the local level. Let's turn over to uh, Romans chapter 12. Because it does matter what we do locally. It does matter how involved we are individually in every congregation around the world. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. Paul said, I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ, but individually members of one another. We have members all around the world. Miss uh, Deborah Lincoln Strange got uh, every uh, Holy Day season gives us puts together statistics for the the church to be distributed uh, for uh, different feast sites and our, our congregations. And let me pass on a few statistics here. 
Uh, did you know we have currently 12,403 members around the world? That's uh, including prospective members and children. Now, again, that's not a huge number compared to mega churches, right? There are a lot of churches out there that uh, have that many people in one, one church, one room. But what is unusual, and this is the, the look you get from people, in, uh, let's say, in the business community, when, when you talk to them about the church, they ask you about the church, and probably many of you have gotten this same response. They ask you, what church do you go to? Well, Living Church of God. Where's that church, right? How do you answer? Well, we're all over. We're all around the world. We have congregations in 398. We have people in 398 congregations around the world. Really? Well, my church is just down the street. We are we are different. Uh, 161 of these congregations are in the U.S. alone. We also have 114 members living in countries where there isn't a congregation. That's 34 more countries. So total, we have brethren in 92 different countries around the world. And stop and think about that just for a moment and, and do a mental map, maybe a globe, you know, and put the dots on in your mind. 92 countries around the world. That's a lot of countries. That's a lot of spread out. 12,000 people. Almost half are in the the U.S., but over half are outside this country. We've got people all over the world. Would you say we have a good ground game for getting this message out to the world? and people all over the world who are helping to support the work in their country and in their locality in whatever way they can. Going on, verse 6, he says, Then having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them of prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, He who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Some of these functions are functions of the ministry, but not all. There are a lot of functions that all of us as different parts of the body, the ear, the nose, the eyes, the hands, the feet, that we all do. And we all are important. These are not insignificant efforts in supporting the preaching, the announcement of the establishment of the kingdom of God. The kingdom's not here, but the announcement is going on today. Ver- uh, number four, number four, <clears throat> another question. Are we committing our lives to God personally on a deep and profound level? Again, it's not, it's not our efforts that are going to accomplish it. It's our being close to God in a personal way. Let's back up to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
We're here to be transformed. Into what? Into thinking like God. Into acting the way God acts. Into valuing what He values. Into thinking what's important that He thinks is important. And what is He thinking is important right now today? Getting behind the causes of this world? Or preparing for the establishment of the kingdom of God? As we get closer to Him, we get more in tune. We think about... And we're on fire for what he's doing. And that's what we're here for. We can't change the world. And we can't do much by ourselves. But God is going to bring a different, totally different system. Let's look at one last question. Number five. Are we holding up the hands of those God's chosen to lead his work. Let's go back to Exodus 17. Exodus 17. Are we holding up the hands of those that God has chosen to lead his work at this time? There's a really interesting quick story here. After Israel had come out of Egypt and they were making their way through the wilderness and Amalek attacked them. And you know the story. Uh, Moses told Joshua to send out men to fight with Amalek, and they did. And verse 10, And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill, and so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. Exodus 17, verse 11. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. They were holding up the arms of Moses. And brethren, it's our job to hold up the arms of our leaders. They carry a heavy responsibility, and they need encouragement. They need our willingness to rally to the cause to an understanding of what we're doing in this day and why we've been called. Just as Aaron and Hur held up the arms of Moses, we can do that today. Notice at the end in verse 15. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. Interesting. The Lord is my banner. You notice that they were not glorifying Moses. They were not deifying Moses. And we don't glorify and deify our leaders. We don't deify Mr. Armstrong. We didn't deify Mr. Meredith. We don't deify Mr. Weston today or Mr. Ames or any of our other leaders. We honor God for what he's doing. And yet we hold up the hands of our leaders. And isn't it interesting that they built the altar and called its name, The Lord is My Banner, Yahweh Nisi. Yahweh Nisi. Think about that for a moment. There are a lot of banners flying around today, aren't there? A lot of slogans. They show up on hats. They show up on T-shirts. They show up on Facebook. 
They show up on at basketball games, at political rallies. A lot of banners. But brethren, what is our slogan? Is the Lord our banner? Is that the flag that we're rallying around? And frankly, that flag, ultimately, we learn this at the Feast of Tabernacles, the whole world will rally around the banner of Jesus Christ. We just have a chance to do it ahead of time. What banner are we holding up to the world? Is it the right banner? Let's turn in conclusion, Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Because what a tremendous opportunity you and I have to, brethren, be, be protected from some pretty... Pretty dark days coming. But let's not forget others who are still struggling, who are still confused, who need the truth, who need these holy days that we're in the middle of observing. Let's not forget them. Let's not forget the cause that God has established to help them, to warn them, to give them an understanding of where we are and what's coming and how to survive through these days. Jesus told his disciples just before he left and went to the throne of God, he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, comm- teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here we are, at the end of the age. Brethren, in this time, let's, let's cleanse our minds. Let's get our minds off of the distractions. Let's focus and soak our minds in the truth and meaning of the holy days. Let's fill our thoughts and hearts, even before we go to the feast, even before the Day of Atonement. We don't have to just do it on the day. Let's fill our hearts and minds with the importance of these days, especially as the pressure intensifies from the causes around us. We have such a great cause we're a part of, the absolute best cause that ever will be. The announcement of the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth.